How much for the little girl? The women. How much for the women? What? Your women. I, I, I want to buy your women, the little girl, your daughters. Sell them to me. Sell me your children. They're not for sale. to the Mad Max Minute presents Waterworld H2O Minutes at a Time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minutes 81 and 82, which begin with the Mariner asking about resin and end with the Drifter deciding to open his secret stash. So we got our first peek at the Creepy Drifter at the tail end of last episode, and I think before we get too far into his performance, we might want to do a bit of an actor introduction. Excellent. Go for it. The Drifter, which I could probably call him the Drifter 2.0 since we've already had someone in this movie called the Drifter, but he is played by Kim Coates. According to IMDb, his top four are 2011's Goon, 2010's Resident Evil Afterlife, 2000's Battlefield Earth, and 2005's Assault on Precinct 13. According to FamousCanadians.org, Kim Coates was born on February 21st, 1958, in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, to Joyce and Fred Coates. He went to the University of Saskatchewan, where he enrolled himself in a drama elective and realized there that he wanted to become an actor. Prior to that, he had never even seen a play before in his life. Coates began performing in local productions, portraying Stanley Kowalski in A Streetcar Named Desire, and becoming the youngest actor to play the role of Macbeth, in the Stratford Festival in his hometown. Since then, he has been cast in more than 50 plays. He kickstarted his movie career in 1986 when he was offered a small role in Charles Jarrett's The Boy in Blue. While that film got his foot in the door, Coates' big break came in 1991 when he played Chet in Tony Scott's The Last Boy Scout. Over his 34-year career, Coates has accumulated 140 acting credits, both in movies and on television. Wow, 140? Yep. Sometime in the mid-aughts, Coates decided to transition from acting to producing, and since 2007 has produced four films, also an episode of the television show Bad Blood, and a film that is currently in post-production. Coates lives in Los Angeles with his wife and two children, and he is also one half of the podcast Theo Rossi's Theory with Kim Coates, which he co-hosts with his Sons of Anarchy co-star, Theo Rossi. Okay. Well, everybody does have a podcast. Everybody's so. got a podcast. But here in the movie, he is just the drifter, who at the top of this episode mentions that he is there for trade. And the first thing the Mariner wants to know about is resin. Yeah, the uh, trimaran took some damage. Oh, a lot of damage. So my assumption is that the resin is for those repairs. It could also be a long-standing need that these most recent damages are not the only damage that is pending repair. Mm -hmm. Did you, when you were watching the clip, notice the odd audio sting that happened after the trader said trade and then they cut to Kevin Costner? Not specifically, but there was something weird about this scene. Yeah. They cut to Kevin Costner from Kim Coates, and of course, Kevin Costner is making an expression, 
but they have the horns in the soundtrack make this weird like rise might be the right word for it it just seems odd and out of place and i have to wonder if that's because it's fan edit or if it was specific for this scene the whole time it just seems like such an innocuous statement of course he's there for trade he had his green flag up why would it be odd or out of place i don't know it sounded weird it's possible that they are trying to preset the tone for what this scene really is going to be about. Gotcha. Because this scene, it's not about resin. Certainly not. It's about trade of a sort. Mm. So they're just, perhaps they're trying to set an uncomfortable tone. Oh, and setting an uncomfortable tone is what Kim Coates does best in this scene because at the mention of resin, the drifter retreats and puts his face into the mast of his own boat and starts muttering, almost chattering to himself, like a chipmunk or something like that. To himself or to the boat? Honestly, it could be either one. I imagine that a boat would become an entity to converse with pretty quick. Mm-hmm. Pretty quick. The mariner says, you've been out water a long time, haven't you? Like, he has seen this sort of madness before and quite possibly experienced it a bit Open before. madness. Yeah, it's an emotional burden being out there by yourself for so long that the drifter state does not surprise me at all. It feels very natural and expected. Mm-hmm. This lapse in conversation where the drifter clearly does not have any resin gives Helen an opportunity to interject and start asking about food. The drifter reacts very interestingly to Helen. He almost leaps up onto the side of his boat and leans toward her and says, could you say that again, please? And I have to wonder, is it specifically because, oh my gosh, this is a woman talking to me? Or is it, I've been alone so long, anybody talking to me is a novelty? I feel like it's a combination of the two. It's been a long time since he's been addressed, and it's been a long time since he's been addressed by a woman, willingly. It's so funny that you read it that way. Actually, you know what? No, it's not. Because your reading, I think, is a more correct reading. What I saw, I saw something different. Okay. He goes on to say, well, yeah, food, that'd be good, eh? Haven't eaten in, well, you know, forever. So I think he's being sarcastic with her. <laughs> yeah, I think he's throwing it in her face how stupid the question is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This scene in the book is from the Mariner's perspective, and so we get the usual frustration and ill feelings towards Helen. The drifter eyed the trimaran and snorted derisively, shaking his head at the notion. You ain't got enough to tempt me. I had enough for you to raise a flag. Just follow in the code, courtesy of the seas. This was your idea, the mariner said coldly. Get on with it. From behind the mariner came the nagging voice again. How about food? He glared at the woman. Didn't she know it wasn't her place to speak up in a barter? But she wasn't looking at him. She was smiling cordially at the drifter. I like the idea that... There are etiquette rules when you see two drifters in barter with each other that you don't interrupt the barter with your own counter offer. Yes, it's really easy to read that as misogyny, but I don't. It's a captain thing. Yeah, it's his boat. It's his trade. Yep. Everything on the boat he owns. So uh, what is Helen supposed to trade for? <laughs> Which we'll get to that. Right. <laughs> yeah, the way it reads in the book... Everything that Helen does annoys the Mariner to no end. 
And it's not surprising that he would be very frustrated with her piping up. But he's getting nowhere with this talk of resin and sails and line. And Helen is very invested in getting food because of everything we saw back in episode 40. Yeah, she is hungry. Enola is hungry. They did a little bit of who's on first-ness in that exchange in the book Mm. that was enjoyable. And it could have underlined his craziness if that had been put in the movie. I'm not sure how well it actually would have played watching that happen. It might have played out a little bit too Three Mm Stooges-like, but it was delightful to read that. Yeah. Don't complain about my lack of things to trade because you're the one that was advertising trade. Yeah. The book continues. Food, the drifter said. Great idea. I haven't eaten in two days. What have you got? Her smile fell. Apparently that wasn't the answer she was looking for. But the drifter's smile and eyes only got bigger as he took in her womanly shape. You the cook or maybe the waitress? Waitress was always my favorite food. Oh, huh. Yeah, that line is delivered differently in the movie. So the drifter is looking at everything on the boat and they bring up the wee orchard, the stick in a pot that the mariner has sitting aside. That looks particularly sad now. Yeah, with the very last tomato plucked from its branches, it now is completely devoid of any life. And I guess the mariner doesn't realize that plants need leaves to survive because by eating all of the leaves, he has doomed this plant. Right. It doesn't really have a way to use photosynthesis in its favor. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that there are ways that it can still help itself. But considering that nutrients are hard to come by, that soil is not getting any nutrients. Mm -hmm. So we might as well trade it. At this point, it is functionally useless. It's not going to bear anything else because there's no energy in that plant to make more leaves. Right. There's no leaves to photosynthesize and make more energy for the tree to grow. Now, the joke in the movie about the waitress and the cook. In the book, he says, waitress is my favorite flavor. But in the movie... He says, which one of you two is the cook then? Because I usually fall for the waitress. Is he asking which of you two, meaning Helen and Enola, or is he saying which of you two, Mariner and Helen? I think Mariner and Helen. I certainly hope so, because he cracks himself up with this joke. And for the longest time, I've always believed that he was asking between Helen and Enola, which one is the cook, which one is the waitress? Yeah. Which made it, oh, so much more creepy. And think of the dynamic between the cook and the waitress. The cook is more in charge than the waitress is. So what he's asking and phrasing in food language is which one of you is in charge and which one of you is subordinate. I don't think he has a trait of flesh in mind yet. I don't think that's his ultimate goal from the beginning. He'd rather get some food. Yeah, after not eating for two days, it's probably top priority, easily. Yeah, so I don't think the drifters joke about who's the cook and who's the waitress is a who has power over the other to sell that person to me. But going back to the orchard comment, he uses that as a bit of a misdirect in order to send the mariner's gaze elsewhere and scramble onto the trimaran. Maybe that was the point. Charm him and then (laughs) and sneak onto the boat. He doesn't get far. Helen and Enola see him do it, and Helen rushes to 
protect Enola from this crazy madman that has leapt onto the boat. And he finds himself sandwiched between two people. And it's then that the Mariner says, okay, fine, we can talk. And we cut from there to seeing that a trade has already taken place. Yeah, some time passes. The Drifter is putting on Helen's necklace and Helen is off on the side doing something with a fishing pole. Trying to put it together. Yeah, it's clearly coming in two pieces. And however it fit together in the past, it's not easily fitting together now. Right. Her logic comes up short sometimes. (laughs) Why would a man who is so hungry he hasn't eaten in like, you know, forever, why would he trade away a fishing rod? If he has a functional fishing rod, why would he still be hungry? Exactly. And why is he trading it away? Because it doesn't work. So yeah, Helen's logic is lacking. And she traded away the only trinket that she had to offer in barter in the necklace. So she's really got nothing else to work with. Nope. As far as trinkets and items are concerned. It's not till the trade gets going that the drifter comes around to, you got yourself a wee harem going here, don't you now? <sighs> so gross. It is gross. Like he looks over his shoulder at Anola and then makes that comment. Yeah. Then he offers to trade for the women. Jumping back into the book, it says, Pretty soon a trade had been made. First, there was the ceremony of the mariner offering the drifter a glass of his hydro, and the drifter doing the same from his own hydro storehouse. After dickering, the tomato plant and two rearview mirrors were at the drifter's feet, and the mariner had at his feet a coil of rope. Finally, the drifter got around to it. Got yourself quite a little harem going, he said. The mariner said nothing. What do you want for the females? The drifter asked. There is a comedic scene in the Blues Brothers movie with Dan Aykroyd and Jim Belushi where they have crashed a very fancy restaurant and Jim Belushi leans over to this incredibly rich guy at a table and makes a joke about how much for the women I want to buy your women. And he's very clearly poking fun at this guy's incredibly rich nature where everything is a commodity and everything is bought and sold. This is not comedic. No, this is worrying because in this world, there is no law and order. So if the Mariner and Helen refuse his offer of trade, I'm now worried about violence. Yeah, what's to keep him from, instead of accepting that they're not for trade, what's to stop him from just taking what he wants? Right. That worries me. The potential for violence worries me a lot in stories like these where law and order aren't really a part of it. Mm. You've got to really rely on an individual's good nature, so to speak. And that is a huge part of this scene that we will talk about over the next couple of weeks, that we are heavily reliant on the good nature, if it can be called (laughs) that, of the Mariner. And here we start out okay. The drifter says, what do you want for the women? Helen stands up for herself. We are not for sale. And the drifter's like, not for sale? I mean, there's no such thing as not for sale. And in this world, yeah, he's right. There's no such thing as not for sale. It all depends on what you're offering. You've got an entire faction built around slaving. So you can't say people are not for sale because there are folks out there who sell people. Right. And Helen already showed once before that she was willing to trade her body for safe passage. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, she is for sale. You just have to be able to trade the right thing. The major difference between that situation and this situation, of course, is 
who is managing the sale. Absolutely. Absolutely. Previously, it was Helen managing her own trade. And now she did stand up for herself, which is kudos. But the drifter's not taking that. When he returns to bartering, are they a pair or would you consider selling them separate? He is talking to the Mariner. He's not talking to Helen. And I like how the Mariner initially dismisses this idea. He says, our business is done here unless you've got some resin you can part with. And the drifter fires back by saying, I, I don't have resin. I'd never had resin. Stop bringing up resin. It's not even something on the table. But the drifter is so desperate for this trade for Helen and probably Enola as well, based on what he says in future minutes, that he tries to keep the negotiations still open, telling the Mariner to wait, 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 wait. He does have something that'll make him change his mind. Right. Because if the Drifter leaves the Trimoran, then they're done. So the Drifter just wants to stay on the Trimoran, and there's still a chance. Yeah, maybe... Or negotiation. Maybe work some of that Drifter charm on the Mariner. And... Right. Get some because extra leeway. Both of them are overflowing with charm. I know, right? Gah. I appreciate that even though they're meeting on the open ocean as essentially desperate strangers, that they are able to, like the drifter said, follow the rules and observe old customs. Which is much more prevalent in the book version of this scene. They come right out and say the ceremony of this was done. There is much less ceremony tradition in the movie scene that contributes to my nervousness over this scene in the book there is enough tradition being honored that it puts me at ease a little bit over the potential of violence yeah they have the flexibility in the book to point out that this is something that is always done during trades they don't take the time in the movie to stop and explain what they're doing which honestly i'm good with i don't need to see things taking place and have it explained to me in a side chat where Helen leans over to Enola and says, oh, this is the trading thing that they always do. They sit down and they exchange water from each other's cisterns. Right. And the tension that is felt in this scene, the curiosity over this drifter, we need that to move the story forward. It's mm -hmm. good movie making to have a scene that builds tension, even if it is a gross scene. Yeah, certainly gross. <laughs> Kim Coates is doing a really good job at being unnerving. I know that people in the past have referred to this character as some sort of dime store Robin Williams. Yeah, it's the eyes. It's totally the eyes. That as grimy and sunburnt as he is, his eyes just pop. Oh, they are a brilliant blue. They are. And that is very reminiscent of Robin Williams. Yeah. What really unsettles me the most about the Drifter is how many scabs are on his face from probably old sunburns and scratching at burnt skin. I also noticed his hair. You probably see people, girls mostly, like playing with their hair, like twirling their hair in their fingers. Yeah. Well, if you do that enough, it's going to start to knot up. So it looks like that's what he's been doing. He has been more on a manic side of things, twisting his hair, and it has permanently become twisted giving himself not full-on dreadlocks like no. you saw in battlefield earth but <laughs> sort of impromptu lazy dreadlocks yes and if you keep doing that to your hair it's gonna fall out it's gonna break and you're gonna end up with short patches and that also seems to be maybe what's been happening his hair is very uneven 
you know, in this world, I'm surprised so many people have so many teeth. Yeah. How does anybody have any teeth left? <laughs> that is the enduring question through all of the different movies that we watch. Yeah, right? If it's set in an apocalyptic situation, how do people still have so much teeth? Yeah, just looking at this guy who is showing physical signs of being out there for too long, and he still has a perfectly fine set of teeth. That's the one thing that everybody really treasures in this world. <laughs> it's set of teeth. So the drifter does have something that the mariner might find valuable enough to trade the women for. Mm. And I don't believe we get to see any of that in these two minutes. No, he slips a rope from around his shoulders. We saw in a bit of a wide shot that he has some sort of canister sitting around the small of his back. And he does not open the canister this week. All right. But the idea that there is something that will make him change his mind is enough for the mariner to lower himself back into a seated position to continue these negotiations. I do want to comment real quick on the drifter's clothing. It is, oh gosh, what do you call them? The Oh, the, the six-pack yeah, can six rings. Yeah, six-pack can rings. There's a name for those, right? I you don't know, know. They're the things that you're supposed to snip. That way sea turtles don't get choked by them. Right. Or and seagulls. he has collected enough of them to make a jacket, cloak type thing. Yeah. It doesn't actually provide anything, any protection from anything at all. So this is a purely aesthetic decision. Yeah, he has tied them all together in a sort of net configuration and it provides a look. Yeah, it does not provide anything except a look. It fits his own aesthetic. Yeah. Crazy. I don't feel like it's as crazy as that weird index finger rubber glove thing that he has, though. Yeah. I still don't understand it. That one is weird. You know what? No, I'm kind of thinking about it. It's not that weird. Because, well, first of all, it makes me think of a finger condom. I'm sure those things have a real name, but that's what colloquially they're called. It's a little plastic condom. There's no other way. It's the tip of a rubber glove. Essentially. Yeah, that you put over a finger when a finger gets injured, you put a band-aid on it, helps protect the band-aid from moisture and wear and helps you keep it clean and whatnot. Very common in like first aid kits. So that's what it reminds me of. It also reminds me a little bit of several weeks ago now, we saw Helen using that piece of leather that wrapped around her thumb and into the palm of her hand. That's right. I can't remember what it was called. It was a sailor something. It was for sewing canvas. You use the leather to push the thick needles through the canvas. It might have been called like a sailor's palm or something yeah, like that. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, so I'm wondering if it's there for work reasons. Probably. I don't see why not. Yeah. Could just also be the remnant of a glove. Yeah, and he's, he's wearing it for the heck of it. He started out with five fingers and now he's just down to the one. <laughs> well, that pretty much wraps up this week's show. We will come back next week when the Drifter will show off what is inside that canister, which turns out to be paper. Helen will refuse to be traded, and the Mariner will do his best Hollywood producer impression by ignoring her wishes and pimping her out anyway. Wow. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. Waterworld was written by Peter Rader and David Tui, directed by Kevin Reynolds, and presented by Universal Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of danielbatista.com. 
Our home on the internet is madmaxminute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Mad Max Minute. And like us on Facebook by searching Mad Max Minute and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit patreon.com slash madmaxmin. Thank you for joining us for Waterworld episode 41. We'll see you next time. Bye.